Our reading for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 38. Listen now to the word of the Lord. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. With what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. I want to thank our seven preachers from uh, our Good Friday night service. Uh, we ended this service in silence and darkness, so we didn't, I didn't get a chance to uh, thank each of them. And some of you also may not have had a chance, so if you want to, you can do that uh, later today. And also thanks to Pastor Danny for uh, leading us in worship this morning at 6 a.m. Um, for today's service, let me just say a couple things. One, for parents with young children... Um, I want you to feel comfortable and relaxed. If your kids start to get fussy, and what, it's okay. It really is, okay? So I know some of you, um, in the classic Presbyterian fashion, want everything nice and ordered. But at least this Sunday, uh, when we get to celebrate the resurrection, uh, it's okay for us to have a little noise, a little disorder. So uh, I want to encourage the parents to stay in service for the kids to stay reasonably in control, but to, uh, to, to be here. And I know we got all the uh, noisemakers uh, to celebrate together, uh, but I would also ask, um, as I'm speaking, uh, if you could refrain. There may, be, there may be moments in the sermon where you think, wow, that was really good, and then you can you know, really kind of shout and shake and all that stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this day that you have made. Uh, this day, at least this day, we get to proclaim your victory over death, and you have given us eternal life, and that promise is sure. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for dying for our sins, and we thank you that you have risen, and you have promised that we, too, will rise. We pray this, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, as you know, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from death and the grave is our core and central belief. Without it, everything else crumbles and we have nothing. I'm not going to repeat today <coughs> the familiar arguments, but many people, and I've argued over the years, that despite the incredulity of the resurrection, and though many people doubt it, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the most reasonable and convincing explanation that we have for what happened to Jesus and to the disciples and to the beginnings of the early church. But I'm not going to talk about that today. Instead, I want to consider the question that Paul raises. Paul raises. 
How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Now, these are the kinds of questions that all of us have asked at one time or another. My kids, when they were little, used to ask, how old will I be when I get to heaven? Will I be a grown-up or will I be a kid? I want to know what version of my body am I going to have in heaven? Will it be the best version of myself? I'm thinking 1986, junior in college, when I was in good shape, when I had more hair, when I didn't need glasses quite as much, when I was thinner, when I was taller, my skin was clearer, no pimples. That's what I want. Maybe you're wondering, will I be able to run and play a full game of full court basketball with the youth rather than the two-minute bursts I can barely manage right now? Maybe you want to know, will I be able to fly like the angels in heaven? What kind of body will I get? And I love Paul's initial answer. He says, the answer is, you fool. I'd love to be able to do that. Anytime someone asks me a hard question, tell me about predestination and free will. You fool. <laughs> but then Jesus says we shouldn't call it people fools. So. But seriously, Paul doesn't really talk about this first question, how are the dead raised? That is the mechanism of the resurrection. He will only tell us later in the passage that it's a mystery that in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, we will all be changed by God. At the last trumpet, at the end of days, we will all be changed. Now that reticence, that lack of information may be disappointing, but that's all we're told. It's a mystery. But to the second question, he gives us a little more detail. With what kind of body do they come? And Paul says our resurrected bodies will be characterized by these four things. He says, first, unlike our current bodies, our resurrected bodies will be imperishable. That is, impervious to death and decay. Second, our resurrected bodies will be raised in glory. Paul will write in Philippians chapter 3, Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory we will reflect, we will be similar to the body of glory that Jesus had when he was resurrected. Third, our bodies will be raised in power, not in weakness and susceptible to illness and disease. And lastly, he says our resurrected bodies will be raised a spiritual body. We are sown a natural body, but we will be raised a spiritual body. And this is really the most important thing for us today. We will be raised a spiritual body. 1 John 3, 2, it says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. I mean, that's an incredible promise, right? After the resurrection, Jesus did some pretty cool stuff. He took what appeared to be quantum leaps between spaces. He seemed to be able to walk through locked doors, right? But he wasn't a ghost. He had a body. He told Thomas to touch him and to feel his scars to see that he was real and concrete. He carried the wounds from the cross, 
perhaps suggesting to us that we too will have some of our scars with us. Jesus walked around, he talked, he cooked, he ate breakfast, he had a body. He had a body. And so we will also be raised not as some disembodied spirits, ghosts, wispy, floating around, but we will be raised as bodies, but these are going to be spiritual bodies. In fact, in the Greek, not a real word study, in the Greek, it actually says we are going to be sown, it says a natural body, and be raised a spiritual body, but in the Greek, literally, it says we will be sown a soulful body and be raised a spiritual body. So a spiritual body isn't something that is not real or uh, ghost-like. It's the difference between natural and supernatural. That's what spiritual is. It's the difference between the soul and the spirit. So it's a body, but it's a spiritual body. And a lot of people have problems with this. The Greeks couldn't understand with the right? They believed, they had no trouble that there could be a resurrection, but they could not accept a resurrection of the body. For the Greeks, they wanted to escape from the body. That was their whole thing. They even had a little wordplay. They had something called the soma sema. Soma is body, and sema is tomb. The body is in a tomb. The physical body is a tomb, and when you die, you are released, and your spirit or soul goes to a higher plane. That's why people like Socrates, they, they were okay when they died, and they would tell them, it's okay, I'm dying, because now I will be released from the limitations of this body, this tomb, and I will be free. And so the church in Corinth, in that environment, struggled with this idea of an afterlife of the resurrection of the body. They had trouble, not so much with resurrection, but the resurrection of the body. It probably sounded too much like, you know, zombies or something, the resurrection of the body. In fact, in that church, they had a group of people. They were so-called spiritualists because they thought that if you were really spiritual, you didn't have to worry about your body. Your body didn't matter. Only the spirit mattered. They thought that because they were justified by grace, that this life didn't matter, and they were, for all practical purposes, already resurrected because they were speaking in tongues and had somehow entered into this higher plane of the resurrected life. And Paul says, no, no, your body absolutely matters. He rejects any sort of separation or dualism between body and spirit and tells them in chapter 6, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body, not just in your spirit or in your soul. Glorify God in your body and with your body. Many Christians today have similarly mistaken ideas about the resurrection, that we will somehow become just sort of these uh, non-bodied spirits. But that is not what it says in the Bible. We will be raised as spiritual bodies. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess we believe in the resurrection of the body, the body. In Latin, it's even more stark. It says we believe in the resurrection of the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just some part of him like the spirit or the soul. God created our bodies good and declared it good, 
and should remind us that our bodies are not inherently inferior or weak or evil. The fact that Jesus himself took on flesh, became incarnated in flesh, reminds us that our bodies do matter and are important. It is the resurrection of the body that holds redemption with creation, the beginning and the end together. God has not abandoned his creation to decay. He is working, and we are bound up with our bodies. Matter and spirit will be transformed and redeemed. Now, <clears throat> Paul, <coughs> in trying to explain what this might be like, uses an analogy of a seed being sown. He says, just as a seed that gets sown must first die, and then a plant rises up. So he makes that difference. The difference between a seed and the plant as the difference between the natural body and the spiritual body. This is something that Jesus said also in John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A seed that is sown has to die first before a plant can grow from it. Now, you can nitpick and argue that the seed technically does not die, but, you know, he's not making a biological point here. It's an analogy to help us imagine what kind of body we might have and that dying, a kind of dying, is necessary before we can have the resurrection. So I want to kind of try to imagine this with you today. This is not an original idea. Uh, most of you, I'm sure, have heard about this in some form or another. But I think it's a better analogy than the, Paul, the one Paul gives about the seed. And the analogy I want to share with you today is the process of holometabolism or complete metamorphism. Big words. Let me get the first picture. <clears throat> this is holometabolism or complete metamorphism. It's a four-step process of an animal that moves from an egg to a larva stage or a caterpillar to a pupa stage or the chrysalis and then finally, an adult. It's these four stages of changing that's known as complete metamorphism. Next slide. Some of you might be more familiar with this. We don't, we don't have an egg, but we do have Caterpie, who becomes Metapod, who then evolves into... I mean, they really got lazy with the names of Caterpie and Butterfree, right? But I love the name Metapod. That is, that is an absolutely great name. Meta, like metamorphosis, and it's a pod, like it's this container. It's a brilliant, brilliant name. But that's what happens. There is this change, this metamorphosis. Next picture. So this is, this is kind of what happens. A caterpillar turns into a pupa or a chrysalis from which, after several weeks, a butterfly emerges. Now, the most interesting part of all of this for me is the pupa stage or the chrysalis stage. Next picture. It's this. It's what happens in there. This is where all the magic happens, where it's enclosed and you can't see, and the butterfly emerges. Now, I'm sure there are some people here who can explain how this 
happens. I hadn't given it a whole lot of thought. If you had asked me you know, several months ago, like what happens, I would have guessed something like, well, the caterpillar spins like a cocoon around itself, and then it's like body shrinks a little bit, and some wings start to grow out of its sides, and then it just grows and grows, and then poof, there's a butterfly. That's the way I kind of would have explained it. Anybody else think that, sort of? OK. Yeah, that's kind of the way, right? And in fact, that's the version we told our kids when they were little. That's the, that's the story we told them. And I know most of you, if not all of you who have children, have told your children the same thing or are telling them the same thing right now, right? Because all of us, or almost all of us, <clears throat> are dedicated to a great piece of American literature. Next slide. Everybody's got this book, right? Eric Carle, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And this is how he tells the story, right? The caterpillar it just eats Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I mean, he's just constantly, constantly eating until, next picture, he becomes a fat caterpillar. Now, he got that part right. And then what happens? Next picture. He builds a small house called a cocoon around himself. He stayed inside for more than two weeks. Then he nibbled a hole in the cocoon, pushed his way out, and next picture, he becomes a beautiful butterfly. That's the story we tell our children. That's the story I was taught. That's the story I believe until this year. <laughs> it's a delightful book. I'm not suggesting, you know, it's a beautiful book. Please continue to read it to your children. But biologically, entomologically speaking, it's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. First of all, the caterpillar does not form a cocoon. It does not. It forms a chrysalis. There's a difference. Next picture. Moths make a cocoon outside of their body. They weave, they spin a silk cocoon outside of their bodies. Butterflies do not do that. Caterpillars, the chrysalis is something that comes from the inside. It sheds its skin, and what's left, that's the chrysalis. That's a huge difference. Next picture. Right? You see this, right? It's what comes out from the inside. It's basically like ripping your skin apart and what remains. That's the chrysalis. That's the pupa. It does not spin that. That's just who you are on the inside. Scientists in the last several years have actually run CAT scans during this process, and we now know what this looks like, and it's even more amazing than you know, anyone had imagined. Next picture. Here's some CAT scans, right? So if you go from the top to the bottom, you can see that the red part, that's the gut, and you can see how it kind of shrinks. All the blue things, that you see, it's, they're breathing tubes. They're not organs or anything else, okay? And so this is what happens on the inside as it's changing, right? So the gut is the main thing that you can see kind of is still there all the way to the end. <clears throat> now, what's really amazing for me is that the caterpillar does not change just a little bit and then somehow grows wings on its body. Instead, inside the chrysalis, what you can't see here What's happening is that enzymes basically turn the caterpillar into soup. That's the word that the scientists use most of the time. 
it turns its entire body basically into soup, into goo. It's like putting the caterpillar in a blender. That's what you get. All its body more or less becomes a smoothie. Now think about this. If a caterpillar loses some legs as a caterpillar, when it emerges as a butterfly, it will have all of its legs back. Because everything, everything gets dissolved. The legs, the antennas, the eyes, everything dissolves. Next picture. This is a, uh, a Drosophila fly, I think. But it's the same idea. When it dissolves, everything gets dissolved. Except for the, you know, you saw the gut, that remained. And these little pieces, these little pieces of cells that are not destroyed, and they're called imaginal disks. Little chunks of cells, clusters, that are not destroyed, imaginal disks. Everything else turns into soup. And it's these little pieces of imaginal disks that gathers and uses the protein-rich soup to create the organs that become the butterfly. Next picture. So here's the summary. After sloughing off my skin, my body was dissolved by powerful enzymes until all that was left inside my chrysalis was a protein-rich soup. Then highly organized groups of cells cut imaginal disks, use the soup to build my new body, and ta-da, here I am. <laughs> this is closer to the truth. This is much more accurate than the very hungry caterpillar. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that amazing? The caterpillar enters into this, this pod, this stage, and then it dissolves everything except for these little specks of imaginal disks from which emerges this incredible butterfly. I want to I just show you something real quick. This is not perfect, but imagine this is a, imagine this is a chrysalis, right? And it's all the goo has been inside, and it's just this, like, shell of a thing, and, and you don't know what's going on inside. But inside, this beautiful butterfly is forming out. Check this out. Imagine all of us getting together. Oh. Little butterfly. Woo! Seriously, though, now, settle down. That's enough. That's enough for us Presbyterians. Uh, I, I hope that transformation encourages you. Because maybe you feel like you're in that pupa stage. Maybe you feel like your life is just completely falling apart. You're, this is Friday for you. You feel like your life has been a blender. You've had a complete meltdown. Maybe your kids are having a complete meltdown again. And you feel like you feel like you're a metapod and you're gonna be a metapod forever. I know it's hard during that stage. I know it's hard to believe and to hope when you're in that stage. But you know, that stage, that breaking down is absolutely necessary before transformation can happen. All of you who have lived a few years, you know that it is through difficulty, it is through struggle, it is through failure and tears and melting down again 
right? That that is what will lead to transformation. It's painful, but there is no other way for metamorphosis. And that's the hope. One of my favorite psalms is the 27th Psalm, where King David talks about going through an incredibly difficult time where, where he's surrounded by his enemies and his life is at stake. Even his parents have forsaken him and he feels absolutely abandoned and alone. But he prays, I believe, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He still has his hope in the midst of being a pupa, a chrysalis, in the goo of his life. When his life has turned to mush, he says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You won't be a metapod forever. That was my alternate sermon title. You won't be a metapod forever. But it's a stage that you, you have to go through. And, you know, one more thing about this that just, it's just so fascinating to me. You know, in the chrysalis, the caterpillar's entire body dissolves. Its brain, think about this, its brain gets liquefied. And so one of the questions that scientists have is, you know, is the butterfly in any way related to the caterpillar? Is it somehow the same in any meaningful way? Well, they did this really interesting study. They took a bunch of caterpillars and they exposed them to an odor that normally in nature they could care less about. It's completely neutral. But they exposed this particular odor, and every time they were exposed to it, they would give them a little electric shock. No caterpillar, none died in the experiment, okay? <laughs> just, just a little shock to let them know this odor is bad. And so eventually the caterpillars learned. Every time that smell came, they would try to run away to the, you know, the corners of the container to get as far away from the smell as possible. And then they let the caterpillars go into the chrysalis stage and then to emerge as, as moss, not butterflies. Slightly, but same, same group, right? And what's really interesting is when they became moths, they remember the smell. Isn't it amazing? I mean, their brain had been liquefied, and yet some imaginal disks somehow preserved some of those memories, and it got passed on to the adults. I, I don't know about you, but I just thought, wow. Right? Isn't it? I mean, it's just somehow the memories got passed down. It suggests that butterflies have at least some memories of being a caterpillar. Not only that, as a caterpillar, it carries the genetic blueprint for its future butterfly form. While a caterpillar the genes that um, print for butterfly are turned off while the caterpillar genes are turned on and then vice versa in the caterpillar. In other words, the caterpillar in its present carries the memories of its past as well as the blueprints for its future. Even though it dies, right, it essentially becomes a protein shake. Its personality is not lost and in its death, It finds life. Now, I know that was a bit long, and that's probably more information about butterflies than you want to know. And I don't want to push this analogy too far, but I found it so suggestive for us. 
I'm not suggesting that you're going to turn into butterflies or that you're even going to go have wings or anything like that. This is not proof of the resurrection, but I find it so suggestive. Even the very words, imaginal discs leading to an adult butterfly, right? It's almost like even in its death, it's imagining what its future is going to look like. And you know, do you know the words that people who study butterflies use for an adult butterfly? They call that the imago. The imago. The imaginal discs lead to maturity, and that is called the imago. Dare I say, the imago dei, the image of God. In the soupy crucible of the chrysalis, the imaginal discs imagine or remember the imago, what it was meant to be and to become. And I think this metamorphosis suggests for us a way to imagine what our spiritual bodies might look like, that there is a continuity between this life and the life to come, that even in death, there can be a bodily resurrection. We will be raised as Jesus was raised, and our imago Dei, the image of God, the original, will be restored. Well, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the promise of our bodily resurrection. Just as God raised Jesus, so God will also raise us on the last day. It is not something that we can manipulate. It is not something that we can, you know, do for ourselves. It is something that is that comes out of us. It's not something we weave for ourselves. It's who we are in Christ that gets transformed. And it is God who will do it all. And so I think what it means for us today, for now, this Easter day, here in this body, is that not only do we have hope when we're in that middle stage of life when it's difficult, but it means, I think, something more for us as a body. Paul says at the end of this chapter in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This life, this body are very much connected to the life and the body to come. And so he says, be steadfast, be immovable, and always be abounding in the work of the Lord. We are called to the work of the Lord while in this body. And the most important work that you and I can do in this body is to love our neighbors, is to love our enemies, is to love one another. Not in some abstract way. You know, I love them in in my thought, right? But to love them concretely in a real concrete way. The work that we do together in love will demonstrate to the world the reality of the resurrection that we profess as a church. In other words, we the church and the love that we share and the work of love that we do is the ongoing proof of the reality of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are and that's what we do. I know that the resurrection defies known medical science, but it's true. He has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruit of the harvest. That's our hope 
and that's our call. You and I are this ongoing demonstration of this truth and reality. And, and this, is the, this is the wisdom of God, that God would show the power of his resurrection in this body, not in some, some cosmic show of force, but in the weakness of the broken body of Christ, the church, the resurrection is being manifest. You and I are God's ongoing demonstration of his reality, of his power, of his love, and of his promise of a new and resurrected life. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, we thank you that you have taken away the sting, the poison of sin, so that we need not fear separation from you in death. God, today, we would keep company with those who say, look and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads at what you have done. Help us to be a people who practice resurrection together and so be your witnesses as your body, as your real presence in and to this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you now to the Lord's table. The Lord Jesus.